0: Turn with me, if you would, this morning to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you get there, let's stand together as we read. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 2 preach the word and be instant in season out of season and reprove rebuke exhort with all long suffering and doctrine for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and they shall turn away their ears from the truth shall be turned into fables. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be receptive to thy precepts. Father, I pray you'd give us eyes to see in this barren land filled with religious deception that so often bears the name of Christ but is so far from Him. I pray You would bless Your people, shape and purify. Sharpen our minds. Sharpen our discernment. Help us to be loving and gracious yet staunch warriors for the faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you are going, well, what happened to Romans 8? You know, I actually did fully intend to be in Romans 8 again this week. Um, But the Lord reserves the sovereign right to redirect us. And I'm going to tell you truly, that I'm going to deal with some things this morning that I really would rather not deal with. This morning, I hope you'll bear with me and I pray that God gives us ears to hear I have to set down the trowel for Sunday and pick up the sword of defense. I'm just compelled this morning to say something about the proverbial elephant in Helena's religious living room. And that is the meeting taking place this coming Tuesday, where a crowd's going to gather at the steps of the State Capitol building just up the street under the instruction of the well known evangelist Franklin Graham. And I'm sure that most of you have received invitations. Many of you have been asked by well meaning people, Are you going? Maybe you've received signs on your door promoting it. You've seen things at websites or various stores across town. I know I've been asked. In fact, I received an <clears throat> email earlier this week from a, a fellow pastor whom I would consider a friend. It was a well-meaning email and told me he'll be traveling up to attend the meeting and was asking if I was going to be there. Most of you probably gathered the answer to that question is no. No, I'm not attending as an individual. And No, I'm certainly not encouraging us as a church to show up. But here's the deal. I think it's important, once again, in an age so filled with confusion to talk about why that is. Oh, I'm compelled this morning to give some of the reasons behind this line of thinking. And believe me, I know by experience I'm not going to get out of this message without somebody getting upset at something, but here's what I want to ask you. At least hear what's being said before you pass judgment. It might be that if what I say rubs fur the wrong way, then you're the one that needs to turn the cat around 180 degrees. So oftentimes, uh, that's exactly what the real problem is. I'll tell you what my reason for not going is not. It's not because I don't want fellowship with the Lord's people. I certainly do. I love believers in Christ. I love to be sharpened and shaped. I love to hear what God's doing in other parts of the world. It's not because our nation doesn't need prayer. I ran across a couple of political drawings this week. They made me smile, but they made me grieve too. One of them showed a little ballot and it said, "Check one. Republican in a little box, and Democrat in a little box, and then it said moving to Canada, and that one was checked. Although that's maybe not much better of an option. Another one showed a very unflattering picture of Donald Trump next to a very unflattering picture of Hillary Clinton. And it said 319 million people, and we've narrowed it down to this. Nice job, America. America. But this election is just symptomatic. It's symptomatic that we as a nation have entered the early phases of God's judgment on us as a country. It takes a wicked people who draws nigh to God with their lips and their heart far from Him to put people like this in power. I have no question much of the blame lies at the feet of God's real people who have cobwebs and layers growing in their own prayer closet. I know we need to pray for our country. It's not because Christians don't need to vote. We ought to take advantage of the liberty we have, no question. It's not because we don't need unity. But unity has to be scripturally defined. We talked about this some weeks ago, Bible unity is not agreeing with the masses. Bible unity is not confused people professing to be Christian laying down Uh, doctrinal issues to go to the lowest common denominator in worshiping a generic Jesus that nobody can define. Bible unity is us agreeing with God. This ecumenical confusion going on today is not unity. It's the worst sort of division masquerading as the work of God. It's not because I love contention. You know, I'll tell you truly, I've only lived, if I live, if I have a normal lifespan, I still have half of my years left, roughly statistically. But I am already sick to death with having to deal with these sorts of things. If you think I think it's fun, think again. But a desire for the purity of the Lord's people. A desire to see God's work genuinely furthered and supernatural power attend the preaching of the gospel is what compels the real preachers of God to stand up and deal with this sort of issue. No, it's not fun. Not even close. It's easier to blend in. It's not because I want to suppress zeal. You know, I commend Franklin Graham for being a man who wants to do something about the situation. I really do. He's not just talking. He's going out and trying to do something. That is commendable. I'm not against that. I'm not saying we should be people who only talk. It's not because I'm somehow better than him. Jealous. You know, I think it's amusing. Somebody who's been infected with this new age thinking of judging not. Anything you warn on, they're going to tell you not to judge. But the minute you obey the word of God and try to say something like I'm going to say this morning, all of a sudden they become infallible judges of your motivation. They condemn the biblicist for judging where he's supposed to judge. And then they turn around and judge where they're not supposed to judge. It's not because I question the sincerity of those involved. I know there's going to be a lot of sincere people there on Tuesday. I'm not questioning that. But do we need to be reminded? Sincerity is never the litmus test. The litmus test is not if I'm doing it from my heart. The litmus test isn't does it seem to produce results. The litmus test is, is this in obedience to the Word of the living God? That is the issue. So let's lay aside the straw man arguments about sincerity and everything else, and let's cut down to brass tacks and hopefully look at things how they really are. Why am I not attending? I'm convinced of three things. Before anybody breaks out in hives, listen to the rest of what I'm going to say. I'm not being unkind saying that. I just know how this sort of thing goes. Reason number one, this kind of gathering produces far more religious confusion and adds to the problem more than dealing with the real fundamental issues of what is wrong in this country. reason number two i'm convinced i would be disobeying the word of god to attend reason number three very little if any eternal good can really be accomplished with this sort of gathering and yes i'm going to back that up here's what else i'm convinced of the sincere christians that attend real people of god for most of them One of four things has got to be true. Thing number one, many are totally ignorant of what Franklin Graham really stands for and how spiritually blind that man really is. And yes, I just said that. Many I've spoken to have no idea the depths of compromise and confusion in an organization like that. They're dumbfounded when you begin to go into it. And believe me, this morning I only have time to touch the tip of the iceberg. I wish I had time to say all that was on my heart on this matter, I I don't have the time. But we can at least begin. I think many just simply don't know the associational issues that are at stake. Number two, there are many Christians who are not aware what the Scriptures teach about this particular topic and that God actually does have something to say about our association with compromise. And yes, God has the authority to tell us who to love. One of the arguments I heard this week, well, you're free to attend and or you're free not to attend and I'm free to attend and I thought, brother, I'm free to obey the word of God. That's a pretty restricted freedom. Let's not redefine that word. There are many that are ignoring or minimizing what the Scriptures say about the topic. And I hope there's not many. But there's bound to be some that have determined essentially they know better than God. They've traded the infallible truth of the omniscient King of Heaven for a culturally relevant humanistic definition of love and unity and perhaps revival. Alright, what does franklin graham stand for and like i said i barely have time to start in on this number one in plain fulfillment of end times bible prophecy like the one i just read the franklin graham is a major influence in bringing multitudes of denominations some of which are unbelievably heretical together for the purpose of so-called unity and ministry and gospel preaching This is something that started in the family way back. If you've honestly read accounts of the ministry of Billy Graham, his turning aside began way back in the 1950's when he rejected a separation from false teachers, when he began to embrace total heretics and people who promoted a false gospel. And that led to uh, unbelievable compromise to where decades later Billy Graham could say, me and Pope John Paul II agree on almost everything, and that man is a wonderful evangelist. Did you hear what I just said? Many wondered where Franklin was going to go. Was the apple going to fall far from the tree? Well, that was determined early. Franklin told the Indianapolis Star, I believe it was in the late 70's, that his father's ecumenical alliance with the Catholic Church and all other denominations was one of the smartest things his father did. furthermore, he said in the early years up in Boston, the Catholic Church got behind my father's crusade. That was a first. It took back many Protestants. They didn't know how to handle it, but it set the example. If Billy Graham is willing to work with everybody, then maybe we should too. We're going to talk about this more in a minute, but why would a group that preaches a false gospel be so at home in these men's crusades? You guessed it. Because the truth isn't stood for. False gospels are at home only in a system that will not delineate between truth and error. It's one thing to speak vagaries. It's one thing to mention Jesus and blood and death and cross but to actually preach in such a way that your hearers know that the gospel you're preaching is directly opposed to the false gospel they embrace. It's much easier to just speak in generalities. There's a lot of Jesuses. A lot of bloods. Let's not rock the boat by pointing out uh, which one's being spoken about. In 1998, Franklin's cruise in... Adelaide, Australia left no question about his direction. So here he comes to the media launch for this gospel preaching crusade and he's launched by Catholic Archbishop Leonard Faulkner and Anglican Archbishop Ian George. Now you talk about confusion. The festival South Australian News, here's what they said. The archbishops agreed this festival with Franklin Graham next January is going to be the greatest event the churches have seen in Australia's history. And so you have a gathering of 400 different denominations, including uh, Roman Catholic, Uniting Church, I'll say more about that in a minute, Churches of Christ, Anglican, Greek, Orthodox, and Seventh-day Adventist, uh, just to name a few are involved with this organization, involved with this crusade. Jump ahead to 2006, and you've got Franklin Graham's festival in Baltimore, and there he trains 225 staunch Roman Catholics to participate as altar workers at the crusade to meet people down front when they come forward to be saved. Here's what one of the Catholics said It was a great opportunity for the Christian churches to show their unity in leading people to Christ. Which Christ, I ask? In an interview with Katie Couric on NBC television, April 2nd, 2005, Franklin Graham praised Pope John Paul II and claimed, listen to this, we preach the same gospel. He and I agree on all of the fundamentals. I hope most of us can appreciate the unbelievable danger of that statement I just read. I really do. I have time to just barely illustrate Let's get this straight. The common mantra today, and it's so grieving to hear that you're a Catholic basher. I'm not a Catholic basher. Basher, my job is to preach the Word of God. I don't care what label somebody is. But an organization that preaches such a false gospel, it's not bashing anybody to point it out for what it is. It's because I love the souls of men and I don't want them perishing in hell. The Pope claims to be the supreme authority of the one true church on earth and the bold bodily representative of Christ. And if you don't believe the Roman Catholic Church is a false church promoting a false gospel, you have not done your homework. Can I be plain about that? Listen, the authoritative statements of the Roman Catholic Church on what they believe is not some guy that claims to be a Catholic on religious radio. You want the authoritative statements on what the Catholic Church believes, you have to go to their official documentation, in this case, which would be the Second Vatican Council. If you disagree with what I'm saying, I challenge you, pick up a copy of the Second Vatican Council and see if you agree on the fundamentals and preach the same Gospel as what's outlined on that paper. The Second Vatican Council was an official Catholic doctrinal convocation lasting a little over three years, 1962-65. to attended by more than 2,400 Roman Catholic bishops, led by two popes. These aren't just the pronouncements of so-called Catholic apologists. They're the most authoritative doctrinal pronouncements of modern Roman Catholicism, period. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing not even close. I'm going to paraphrase some of the things because of the terminology, but let me just give you some of the official declarations of the Roman Catholic Church. Number one, Mass is a re-sacrifice of Christ every single week. Mass is necessary for salvation. Baptism is necessary for salvation. The wafer of bread is to be worshipped as Christ because He's present in the elements. Masses have to be conducted for the dead. Catholic tradition is on equal par with Scripture. Salvation is distributed by the Pope. Salvation is by good works, indulgences, and rituals. Listen to this one. Salvation, grace, is not free, but must be earned. Mary is co-redemptress with Christ. Therefore, we really have two saviors believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the asterisk in the parentheses and the Virgin Mary... Purgatory is necessary to purge sins. Prayer must be offered to the dead saints. The Catholic priests share the identical priesthood as Christ, which means forgiving sin. And it reaffirmed dozens and dozens of anathemas from the Council of Trent such as these. If anybody denies baptism is is a part of salvation, if anybody says salvation is by the free grace of God alone, let him be cursed of God in hell now tell me something is what I just read the faith once delivered to the saints is what I just read the gospel of the New Testament of Jesus Christ is what I just read explaining the Christ of the Bible or the Christ of false religion I hope we can see it's the latter I really do How in the world can a so-called evangelist yoke together with that sort of damnable heresy for the purpose of so-called ministry and say that we believe the same things and we preach the same gospel? That alone is proof positive. This man is unbelievably blind in the spiritual realm. As a result of that, Franklin Graham has a tremendous refusal to preach a clear gospel. That's why you see the shallow terminology. Ask Jesus into your heart. Pray that prayer. Jesus went all the way to the cross for you. Surely you can come to the front of this beautiful auditorium for him. Friends, that's not the gospel. Believe on the real Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Listen, let's say I stood up in the crowd. Let's say in here we had a whole bunch of Roman Catholics who believed the things I just read. We had a contingency of Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, Church of Christ so-called, Unity Church. Let's say I got up and I said, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for our sins. If we believe in Him, we are saved. He rose from the dead the third day and lives in heaven. How many of those groups would disagree with I just said with what I just said? 0 You see the problem is so many of these groups have the same vocabulary and a different dictionary. You get up to a group that you know is mostly Roman Catholic and you know by their own declarations that their definition of grace is that it has to be earned, it is crime before the high God of heaven to say you're saved by grace through faith and leave it at that knowing they have no idea what grace is. You see, it doesn't offend any of the world religions to speak in general terms. And that, by the way, is why a Catholic or any other false gospel proponent is at home at one of these meetings, and yet has no problem going back and clinging to their icons and heresies and worshiping a piece of bread, because they haven't heard the gospel, they've heard a shallow counterfeit, they haven't heard the grace of God, they've heard biblical terminology not clearly defined, that's why they go back to their heresy. The terms faith and grace and Jesus mean different things to different people. Listen, in this age, we had better be careful people have a clear understanding of what those mean. Or they cannot be saved. What happens when somebody comes to the front at a Franklin Graham meeting? First, first guy comes down. He's taken aside by somebody who teaches him Mary is co-redemptress, work, worship, and peace of bread. Salvation comes through the Mass. You have to go to purgatory to burn off your sins. And the Pope distributes salvation. Second guy comes down the aisle. He's led aside. Maybe he'll go to the Uniting Church like they did in Australia. You know, He walks through the doorway and, and he sees the big banner that says this is a declared safe zone for homosexuals he finds that the church he's been sent to by Franklin Graham proudly claims and boasts that one-third of their members are sodomites. And let's say guy number three comes down. He's broken. He wants to know who God is. And so he's turned aside to a church that tells him, listen, baptism is part of salvation. You've got to be baptized. Yeah, belief's part of it. And then here comes another guy. And he's sent aside to talk to somebody who tells him Ellen G. White was a prophetess. Death is only sleep, and that literal hell is a figment of somebody's imagination. And the list goes on and on. And on, tell me something: Is that defending the gospel of Christ? Is that standing for truth? Is that delineating between, between truth and error, or is that total and complete confusion? It is unconscionable for a professing preacher of the gospel of Christ to turn duped souls over to the blind leaders of the blind to be led off to hell by false gospels all under the guise of preaching for Christ. That is a bunch of nonsense. But there's an amazing duplicity. You know, Billy Graham, several solid preachers back in the last century referred to Graham as Mr. Facing Both Ways. And here's what they meant. He can be in a conservative crowd and talk Christianese. He can sound very orthodox. You put him in a room full of politicians and civil rights activists and false gospel proponents, and all of a sudden his terminology changes and he blends right in with them like a chameleon. So multitudes thought, I believe just like this guy. But when they really researched where he stood, they were shocked. It was a 2014 article in Charisma News. Graham gets all bent out of shape about the Muslims being allowed to pray in the National Cathedral. Probably should have been bent out of shape about that. See, that's a commendable stance. But listen to what he said. He said, it's sad to see a church open its doors to the worship of anything other than the one true God of the Bible who sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on earth to save us from our sins. He sees Christians compromise their principles to reach the false religions in the name of ecumenical unity. He's mad. But apparently this only extends to groups that don't use the generic term Jesus. Because as long as you use that word, brother, you're a Christian... I don't care if your Christ is a piece of bread or has a mother of God or is the real Christ of the Bible. Thirdly, Franklin Graham sadly has no problem mixing the most carnal, sensual, even demonic elements of this godless world in an effort to reach the lost. Now, I'm going to, you know, I hope this works. Last time I tried to play something. And I, I, I did. I, I deliberated with playing something like this in a morning worship service because I don't want to defile your head. But I do want you to see what I'm saying. My computer hates me and so does the internet, so we'll just see how this works. I got it to work earlier. Bear with me, it's not liking my fingerprint. Are you available to help make this work, or no, baby sleeping? All right, you know what, I think this is worth watching. Let's take an intermission real quick. Let me try to get around this. If not, well, we'll see. This big. All right, now, let me preface this. This is just one example of something that's an ongoing issue. Okay, 2009, you can look this up for yourself. There's a series of festivals, as he called them, called the Rock the River Crusades. Some of you may have heard of them. And there's a series of meetings going up the Mississippi River, trying to reach the lost. And here, here's what Graham says. Okay, as we head, here's what he says about the, this festival. As we head up the Mississippi River... Now, listen carefully. We will be going against the currents of secularism, postmodernism, and against the godless culture in which we live. Okay, that's what this meeting is going to do. It's going to go against godless culture. Now, let me play you some of their beautiful worship music. That gives you somewhat of an idea. Doesn't that edify your heart? I mean, isn't that the beauty of holiness? Isn't that confronting the godless culture in which we live? That music video looks like it was filmed in hell. And if that's Christianity, so is the devil. Once again, this is tip of the iceberg. Of what's available to prove the veracity of what I'm saying. So that's how they confront the godless culture. So you have 100,000 young people gathering at these meetings for some heathenish rock concert with some of the well-known CCM bands. That one's called Flyleaf. And of course, the modern trend in these rock groups. They're not a Christian group. They don't claim that. <clears throat> They just have to have one member who says they're a Christian and all of a sudden they're okay to play at these festivals. That's why that particular group is on MTV all the time. Is it any wonder? But hey, let's channel that for the gospel. Complete with crowd surfing. Franklin Graham had them set up a a mosh pit so the tattooed shirtless men could bash into each other and slam each other to the ground in their worship, head-banging, other things, and of course, a characteristic shallow and vague gospel message by Graham encouraging people to repeat a little sinner's prayer and text their newfound faith. In what? One observing pastor who was there. Here's what he says. I will not attempt to describe in depth the ungodly-looking characters and music Graham made use of and to fight the evils he just mentioned. Suffice it to say, I am of the opinion... That long haired, earring men, in some cases wearing eye makeup and sexualized, screaming and even growling women, pumping out ear splitting, demonic sounding music while gyrating, writhing, and slamming around in front of immodestly dressed, crowd surfing, moshing, screaming fans, is hardly the antithesis of the godless culture in which we live. He's right. Consider some of the quotes from the Facebook page of this particular event, proudly headed, yes, by Franklin Grant. This is from their official website. Here's some of the testimonies of this marvelous ministry. Brooke says, I got kicked in the face by a crowd surfer when Flyleaf was playing, and yes, I'm proud of that. Haley says, OMG, that's short for the blasphemous statement, oh my God, in case you're wondering. OMG, it was amazing, I just got home. My neck hurts so bad from head banging. OMG, I wish I could see them all again. Well, let's hear from Heather. I just got home from, and it took amazing pics, because I was in the pit in the very front row. I got smashed during flyleaf and was kicked in the face. I'll have a black eye tomorrow, but it was all worth it, because I was a counselor, and one of the people I talked to got saved, and that was all God's doing, not mine. Pray for all those who made decisions. How about Jade? OMG! This girl was crowd surfing and she fell and broke her neck. Me and Shelby saw her. She looked pretty bad praying for her. Will Dover, 19, was celebrating his birthday and danced so hard he could barely stand by the end of the set. I like this stripped down version of Christianity, he said. I like to just scream for Jesus. Friends, the shocking part of this is Franklin Graham unabashedly calls such a spectacle worship of our thrice holy God. If that does not constitute spiritual blindness, I'm at a loss to tell you what does. Again, quoting the pastor who was there to witness to the young people. He says, "...true ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ do not facilitate, promote, and encourage crude, frenzied, sexualized, and even violent worship is acceptable to the Lord. No, just the contrary. It's the heathens who have always worshiped their false god in that very way. That again is exactly correct. Now, does the Word of God have anything to say about this? And once again, I don't have time to build this whole framework. But we can just touch upon a few very plain and basic principles. First of all, regarding creatures. What's the admonition of Scripture? Believe them all, especially if they're famous. All those that have great statistics and are well known, thou shalt hear their every word, especially if they come to thy town. What's the scriptural admonition? 1 Thessalonians 5, there's the admonition, despise not prophesying, don't develop a posture that's against preaching, but the next verse, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Test what you hear. The litmus test of a preacher is not how famous he is or the results he claims to, to report. It's is he faithful to the Word of God? That's the issue. 1 John 4, 1 and 2, says, "Blood, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, uh, God because many false prophets are gone into the world. Some of these passages I'm just going to reference. You can look them up on your own. We don't have time to read them all. But the premise that's given there is don't be spiritually naive and drink in the words of everybody. Well, every well-known reverend that shows up. Try them whether they're really of God. And he says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. That does not mean everybody who uses the name Jesus is of God. It means those who stand for the Bible doctrine, all of them concerning Christ and who He is and why He came, the real Christ, that's the test. Are they clear on what the Gospel is? Are they clear on who Christ is? Are they clear at dividing between truth and error? Are they able to see the difference? In Galatians 2, an amazing thing happens. God's doing a work at Antioch. We have two of the early apostles there. And Paul in verse 11 says, When Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Now if you consider Peter's spiritual stature at this point, you're talking about the first preacher at Pentecost who saw 3,000 people converted in a day. You're talking about a man who when he walked down the streets of Jerusalem, people would line up hoping their, his, their shadow would pass over them. And that same famous preacher shows up at Antioch, and Paul publicly reproves him in front of a multitude of people. Here's why. He says Peter was to be blamed because before these men came from Antioch, he would eat with the Gentiles. But then this group shows up and he withdrew with the Judaizing teachers and preached a different message. But the central issue in that passage, the clash of the apostles, here's what it was. Paul recognized that Peter's actions were confusing the Gospel message. Paul recognized that if he didn't do something about the situation, hundreds or thousands of people would be confused about the tenets of what the Gospel really was. And he saw that taking place, and in love for the souls of these people, not Peter's personality, he stepped up and said, wait a minute, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. How about regarding fellow professing believers? Here's a couple statements that are sadly totally rejected today. Now we command you, brother, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Paul says you see people not keeping rank, rejecting the basic tenets of the Christian faith by their actions. You get away from them. How about this one? We're, we're going to be there in Romans eventually. Now I beseech you, he says, I beg you, brethren, Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. To mark means to clearly identify. It's not speaking generalities and say, watch out, there's false preachers. It means sometimes calling them who and what they are. He says, plainly identify those who dis- to depart from apostolic doctrine and therefore by their departure cause divisions and offenses. You know, it's interesting, in a lot of these situations, people want to turn around and go against the Bible believer and say, oh, you're causing division. Listen, the person causing division is the one departing from the truth, not the one defending the truth. But Satan's a master at turning those things around. What are you supposed to do when it's clearly demonstrated that somebody is departing from apostolic doctrine by their preaching associations? Avoid them. Don't invite them to take part in your ministry. Don't take part in theirs. Because the purity of the Gospel is at stake. How about end times religion? Second Timothy chapter 3 gives us an amazing picture. He says, "...this know also in the last days perilous times shall come." And he gives a list of all these things, the first of which is men shall be lovers of their own self. But the characteristic of that age at the end is that it, 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 these people have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. In other words, there's going to be this end time spirit that produces naming the name of Christ with your lips and denying him by your life. It's interesting that first characteristic is lovers of their own selves. Quoting somebody else who's at the Rock the River Crusade there, here they are interviewing some young people. He says, with pounding, ear-splitting music as the backdrop, I brought up that the Scriptures command that the Lord be worshipped with reverence and also in the beauty of holiness. So he asked these young people, he says, does this music fit that description, the beauty of holiness? The young women confidently explained to me that it depends on who you are as a person. Like, some people love this, and if you have to worship as you do, and they have to worship as they do. But I asked again, is this music reverent? Again, the God I was put forward as the ultimate authority. I think it's awesome. I think it's perfect. I think for them that's reverent. For you, it might be different. For them, it's how they get it all out. Reverence, I was told, is different for everyone. What about holiness? Well, that's how you view it. Do you notice who is on the throne in the life of people giving that kind of answer? Who's the authority on holiness? Them. Who's the authority on reverence? Them. Who's the authority on doctrine? Them. What you don't hear is what God says or what God desires. Listen, music is secondarily for you and I. Music is presented to God. And the chief issue with music is not what do you like and what do I like? What does God command and deserve and require? Listen, this is just, there's so many examples of this type of thinking that come out of this sort of movement. If you've ever dealt with young people who are infected with this kind of thinking, you're going to find the God eye spreads its peacock feathers and you can't hardly get past it. It's all about how they feel and what they've seen and what they know. But at the end of that passage, he says there's going to be these, these professing Christ with a lip and denying from, with their life, and he says, from such. Turn away. He's telling Timothy, the young preacher, let me tell you how to respond to any type of influence that produces shallow Christianity that talks about Jesus and lives like the devil. You get away from it. Because evil communications are going to corrupt good manners and that leaven is going to spread into the whole lump. How about regarding the use of worldly elements to reach the world? Do I need to convince you that that video I just showed you is of the world? Does anybody really honestly dispute that? What's the Bible command? Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, he's a cutting-edge ecumenical visionary who knows how to reach this generation. No, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Don't harness them as ministry tools, but He says reprove them. Call them what they are and get away. How about our relationship to the lost? Obviously, we're to preach the Gospel. First Corinthians 6 is also very plain. He tells them, be ye also enlarged. He's saying, I want your spiritual growth. But the next verse, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What he's saying is don't enter into a relationship or appearance where you send the message that you and somebody that's dead in their sins are on the same spiritual page and doing the work for God. That applies to marriage. That applies to a business relationship. That applies to ministry. And why is that? Why why would Paul say that? You follow his logic through the passage, and it's not because no temporary good is going to be accomplished. It might be accomplished. But number one is the issue, what fellowship does light have with darkness? In other words, even if somebody claims to be a conservative, if they are by God's definition dead in their sins outside the gospel of Christ, an enemy of God, dwelling in darkness, and you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and are a child of light, the question is, how can you two accomplish any spiritual good in your partnership even if you have so-called conservative principles. And the whole issue there is one of preserving purity, not pragmatism. It's not because of all the good that could be done. It's because God has said, I will dwell among you and be your God. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. How about a relationship to other gospel messages? You can find that in Galatians 1. Once again, that that list I read, this is just dealing with Catholicism and their doctrine. There's many others that could be quoted. Do I need to convince everybody that that's not the gospel of Christ? What does Paul say about it? Though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that we have preached, let him be anathema. He doesn't say if anyone preach another gospel, get together for dialogue and find common ground. If anyone preach another gospel, join together in a crusade at the lowest common denominator and you just all talk about Jesus and leave it at that. Any gospel system so-called that adds works to grace is cursed of God, and is an enemy of the truth, and has no part standing on the platform and taking part in religious ministerial gatherings with the real people of God. What fellowship hath light with darkness? Paul says in verse 10, do I seek to persuade men? Do I seek to please men? He says no. He says, I'm not here to please men. I'm here to please God. You do what you want with it, but I'm accountable to Him. Now, lastly, can any eternal good come out of this sort of mixed disobedient gathering? God can do what He wants. I'm not going to say it can't happen. But I will say this, to expect it in light of the associational issues is ridiculous. I'm telling you, are there any biblical examples of somebody compromising in order to bring about good? And the Old Testament is replete with these kind of examples. One of the ones that comes to mind is 2 Chronicles 18 and 19 You have King Jehoshaphat, godly king. In fact, the Lord says of him in chapter 18, he walked in the ways of David his father. You talk about a high compliment. But you see over on the other side of the fence there's King Ahab. Now King Ahab had his spiritual problems, but he was sincere. but really, would say, King Jehoshaphat, we have a lot more in common than we do different. We preach the same message when you really boil it down. There's no reason why we can't work together for the common good. And so they join together and go to war, and King Ahab is killed. You know the story. Jehoshaphat, beginning of chapter 19, returns to his house in peace until the prophet shows up. Here's what he asks him. Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? That is a question that should be asked to every single compromising preacher in this generation who yokes together with a false gospel to try to promote goodness and truth they ought to be asked publicly, should you help the ungodly and hate or love them that hate the Lord? And says, well, wait a minute, Does, does somebody like that really hate the Lord? If somebody believes in a false Christ, denies they're a sinner in the Bible sense, refuses to come by real grace through faith, yes, that is exactly the case. How about historical examples? I mean, hundreds could be produced. Some of you are familiar with Jerry Falwell. He was a staunch fundamentalist back in the 60s and 70s. It really did a lot of good. Thomas Road Baptist Church. Liberty Baptist College, now Liberty University. Back in its early days, produced a lot of solid servants for Christ. Did a lot of good. In the 1960s, Falwell had rightly said this, nowhere we commissioned to reform externals. Here's what he was saying. We're not out preaching at societal evils. We are aiming at the heart to preach the Gospel and transform men from the inside out. He was correct. In a sermon preached in Indiana, 1978, he starts to do a 180. He says, I believe God has called us in the last quarter of the 20th century to bring respectability to fundamentalism. In other words, he said, God called me to make the world respect our movement. Oh boy, is that an error in thinking. I mean, that's almost verbatim what New Evangelicalism said in the 1940s. Almost exactly. So that mindset leads to the formation of what was called the moral majority. He began to think he needed to get involved in politics and to promote the common good he had to yoke together with all who professed the name of Christ even if they didn't hold to a sound gospel. Well, by 1985, he had a mailing list of six million people, the majority of whom he knew were Roman Catholic. Now tell me, do I need to finish the story at this point? Where do you think that trajectory went? In 1983, Cal Thomas, his director of communications, he said, "Uh, the groups composed of Jews, Catholics, Mormons, Protestants, and a whole bunch of non-religious members. He said, we don't pray at our meetings. If we began with prayer, we would disintegrate. Now, is it any wonder that Liberty University is scarcely recognizable today? For instance, in 2014, well-known Mormon Glenn Beck was asked to give a political discussion to school. And there, under a large banner that read Training Champions for Christ, Glenn Beck gives a tear-drenched sermon about how Joseph Smith was a true prophet of God and exalting Mormon theology and doctrine. And he's greeted with a standing ovation at the end. How did they end up there because the train went off the tracks way back when they refused to separate from a false gospel when they thought they had the freedom to use the elements of a corrupt world to do the work of god don't ever forget what you win them with you win them to. you use that to win people that's what you're going to produce Use demonic elements to bring so called Christians into the church. You're going to have a bunch of Christians that live like demons. And that's exactly what's being produced by these organizations. We could give endless examples of this. What blows me away is how we do not learn from history. Modern day neo fundamentalism, my generation, dozens and dozens of young men my age as pastors, are doing the same exact thing. Someone has said to do the same thing constantly and expect different results is the definition of insanity. No kidding. What do they think they're going to produce? There's no end of desires to reinvent the wheel. I, for one, want to do things God's way, with God's blessing. And I really don't want new inventions that that come down the pike all the time. One verse is commonly used in these type of gatherings. Second Chronicles 7.14 If My people, which are called by My name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek My face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Doesn't that give sanction to what's going to happen on Tuesday? Let's think about that for a minute. First of all, who's My people? Contextually in that passage, My people is the Jew. I'm not saying we can't make application to the church. But the primary context is the Jew. The promise to heal the land, to take away the drought and desert. Listen, America has no promise from God that He's going to take away our deserts and fix our economy if we have a revival. That's for the Jew. God is very interested in our spiritual growth. How about the next qualification? If my people, which are called by my name, do what? Humble themselves. Humble themselves. Jews were masters at claiming to approach God while doing it their own way. It's all over the New Testament. And part of what God is saying when He says to humble yourself, He's saying stop trying to come up with new inventions and do what I say. Stop thinking you are smarter than God. Part of humbling yourself is coming to God the way He's prescribed. My people will humble themselves. How about seek my face? That means desire to know the real God of the Bible and not the God of our own imagination. How about this one? Turn from their wicked ways. In other words, stop promoting false gospels. Stop disobeying God by refusing to separate from error. Stop using heathenish, demonic elements to try to do God's work. Yes, that's a wicked way. Friends, listen. If a meeting like this is gathered for the express purpose of prayer in direct disobedience to the very plain principles of God, how can God really bless it? How can He? Can that happen? Should we expect that to happen? Are the requirements being met? Friends, here's what this gathering is going to be. And I don't mean to be unkind. It's going to be a mixed multitude of various professors of religion, many of whom are dead in their sins and ignorant of the real grace of God. They're going to be gathered together under the leadership of one of the biggest compromisers in this generation who thinks the Roman Pope is a preacher of truth. They're going to hear a shallow gospel message that's too vague to delineate between the real grace of God and the satanic counterfeit that many in the crowd are embracing. Everyone's going to then join in prayer to whatever Jesus they believe in in order to further the conservative agenda at the ballots, listen, while the real moral and spiritual issues of the country remain untouched. You remember what happened at the base of Sinai? Here's Moses up there. He took a long time. And the people come to Aaron and go, now what in the world? What, what happened to Moses? They said, up, make us gods. You remember? So they make a golden calf, and Aaron says, tomorrow's a feast to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Good news, folks. Tomorrow's a feast to Jehovah. Using our guidelines, the best of both worlds, let's just bring everybody into a compromise worship instead of some of the people into the real one. Pragmatism at its finest. Well, you know Moses' response to that, don't you? He was sick to death by it. And so is God. Listen, the real problem with this country at the ballot box is not that conservatives have to rally together. The real issue is the truth of God has been drugged through the mud for too many centuries and God's own people refuse to obey what He says. And let me tell you something. We can dance all around the issue all we want, but until we say, thus saith the Lord, the Bible is actually our sole authority for faith and practice, and obey it and do what He says, America will never again be blessed by God like she once was. It doesn't matter how many gatherings we have at state capitals to further the conservative agenda. The real issues aren't addressed at the heart level. You know what the sad irony is? I say this with some grief. No doubt there will be some present on Tuesday that refuse to darken the door at the prayer meeting in their own church. They're too busy. They've got too many other things to do. But now all of a sudden, bring together the mixed multitude, put the proponents of a false gospel on the platform, bring in reverend apostate, and all of a sudden they get excited about prayer because God just has to answer because of the sheer number of the people present and the fame of the man speaking. That shows an unbelievable ignorance of the God of the Bible. One person walking with God and praying in His will has more clout than 10,000 confused religionists who are not seeking the face of God, period. It bothers me to no end when I hear everybody gather the mixed multitude as though God has to hear. We're not petitioning Congress. We're coming before the living God and if we don't humble ourselves and do things His way and seek His face and have a right view of Him and His holiness and and lay us on our face in the dust and the ground before Him to stand in awe of His presence and to fear Him, you know what's going to happen? The same thing you're gonna see Tuesday over there. Nothing of eternal good. Let me just give a few objections. One I heard this week. Aren't we commanded to pray for government? I mean, first Timothy chapter two is pretty plain. I don't see why it's wrong to go gather and pray for government when the Lord tells us to. Do God's duties conflict? God does command us to pray for government. But he does not command us to do it in a context that promotes religious confusion and calls truth error and error truth. God does not command us to go to every gathering. What if the Wiccans gather to pray for government? Should we show up for that? Well, I'm commanded to pray for government. That's unbelievable thinking. But yet I've heard that this week. Didn't Jesus pray for unity? Once again, scriptural unity is based on truth, not human agreement. That is not unity. That is apostasy. When people can't even agree on who Jesus is and what the Gospel is, that's not Bible unity. What about all the good that the Graham organization has done? I'm not saying there isn't any. But number one, good done is never an excuse for disobedience and compromise. Read Revelation 2 and 3, what Christ says to the churches. He begins with Ephesus. He commends them on their tremendous doctrinal stance and that they were willing to deal with false teachers. But he didn't say, well, you've done so much good, I just can't point out your error. He said, you've lost your first love. And if you don't repent, I'm going to remove you out of your place. Whatever good a person does... Doesn't negate the error they promote and make them impervious to correction. Yet somehow the churches in America have lost track of that. The issue becomes when you point out something like this, well, look at all they've done. Does that matter? Look at the Word of God. Second, professions of faith and tears do not equal salvation. I'm sorry to burst anyone's bubble. But people who sit in a heathenish rock concert, headbanging, getting kicked in the face, and breaking their neck crowd surfing, watching people look like demons on stage with flames and lasers in the background, hearing a shallow gospel presentation where any Jesus would suffice, repeating a little prayer and texting their newfound faith to be counted as a Christian, I don't buy it. I praise God if somebody really come to Christ through that. I do. But if I were you, I wouldn't believe the statistics until it's in a forum where the Gospel is clearly preached and Jesus is clearly presented and grace is clearly defined. How can people believe the real Christ? Fourthly, and I am done with this, shouldn't we lay aside our differences as conservatives to further the common good in the political arena? It's a common one you hear. I mean, shouldn't the government just see all the conservatives in Montana together, you know, just, just people professing faith? I mean, shouldn't they know we're here? Let me ask a question, first of all. Is there not a vast difference between attending a town hall gathering where you come as an individual and attending a prayer meeting with a mixed multitude under the headship of a total apostate for all the community to see? Do you see the difference between the two? If this was just a town hall gathering to discuss things, I wouldn't be preaching this message. But when it's God's professing people yoking together with a false gospel Uh, all across the map for the sake of promoting good, I have to say something. Secondly, how much of this type of thing is trading temporary good for a long-term loss? Here's what I mean. Let's say a group of conservatives get together. Mormon, Roman, Catholic, everybody. Here they are. Let's say they stop the political agenda for the year. Three decades later, what's the long-term fruit of the step that was taken here? Do you realize the devil is very willing to give up a short-term loss to get a long-term gain? And he has done it for centuries. If he can get God's people to compromise a little to see some visible good... He will gladly bide His time to spread the leaven of apostasy years later so that your children and your grandchildren don't even know who Jesus is in a couple generations. What's the real issue? The real issue is a heart change supernaturally given by the God of Heaven as a direct result of placing faith in the biblical Jesus Christ who shed His blood to save us from our sins. And as that message, clearly defined, clearly preached, delineating between truth and error and calling false false gospels what they are, as that takes root in the heart, people are supernaturally transformed. And guess what? You don't have to tell them not to listen to that. I honestly wonder how any person who names the name of Christ can sit at something like that and not puke. How can the, what's he called? Holy Spirit within stomach. That's sort of hellish demonism in the name of Christ. Unbelievable. And for a so-called preacher to promote that sort of trash in the name of Christ is an abomination. There's no other way to say it. 30 years, what's going to be more important? that you were part of some moral majority to promote some short-term political good and win some election, or that you stood for truth and that there's still a clear gospel influence in the earth for the generations to come. What's more important? Multitudes today are trading short-term gain for long-term loss. And the short-term gain really is no gain at all if you disobeyed God to get there. We just think it is. You see, this is how apostasy works, that passage I began with. They'll not endure sound doctrine. They'll be turned into fables. Fables like that kind of music is a wonderful evangelism tool. That's a, that's a big fable today. We are called to stand for truth, not redefine the mind of God and come up with a better idea. So the issue is, I don't think what the Bible says on this issue and what Franklin Graham stands for is really even up for debate. The real issue is, will God's people actually listen to what God says and be blessed for? Let's pray. Father, it's just not enjoyable to talk about this stuff. Lord, I thank You You have given us truth. I thank You, Lord, for a remnant of people sitting here this morning who are willing to even hear what was just said. I know many professing Christians would be infuriated by this sort of discussion. They just don't have ears to hear. I thank You, Lord, there still are some that do. Lord, I know what I've said is not perfect. My attitude's not been perfect. My application's not been perfect. It could have been done a whole lot better. But Lord, yet I pray that You would take the good that was done, the principles that have been set forth. Give us confidence and boldness to obey You in the face of so much rampant compromise. Lord, You've told us this age will be characterized by spiritual blindness, by the exaltation of tremendous amounts of famous false teachers, and we are seeing that today played out before us like never before. Help us not to be downcast. Help us to be gracious and kind and loving, but not to compromise for the sake of short-term gain. In Jesus' name, Amen.